Well, good morning again. It is very, very, very nice to be home. Let me start by saying thank you to everyone that was part of allowing me to spend a few weeks back in America. It was a good trip. My family uh, will join me and come home in about two more weeks, so we look forward to that. Uh, I'm currently a bachelor, and I don't enjoy it. But we go on. They're still having a lot of fun without me. If you're an American football fan, the where they're staying now, they get to go watch the Pittsburgh Steelers practice, and they're all very happy. And my son is learning what American football is, but I'm not the one to teach him. So with that, uh, I want to say it's great to be back. Uh, thank you for your prayers for Isaiah when he got sick, for Eliza when she got sick. Uh, we're very grateful. But it was actually a good trip, despite the hospital visits while we were there. Uh, this morning, we continue our series uh, on the book of Nehemiah, and I'm very excited to catch up where we've been. We started uh, three weeks, uh, four weeks ago, uh, looking at just who Nehemiah was. He was cupbearer to the king. Uh, he had this tremendous responsibility, tremendous skill set. Cupbearer to the king was not a lowly job. It was a, a job of great influence and, and, and great, really, responsibility in the kingdom. Uh, and with that came great power. And the Lord get, put a burden on his heart through prayer. We saw what we learned about Nehemiah was one thing more than other. This was a man of prayerful dependence. God gave him really an impossible task. Rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Kind of like go have lunch on a skyscraper. Nobody's going to do that today. They're breaking so many safety violations. It's not funny. But when God tells us to go and we are truly following him, we step out. Knowing that our God is able, like we just sang about, to do that which he's promised to do. And so that's where we find ourselves in Nehemiah. Uh, then Pastor Eris uh, and Keith reminded us that there was a call set before him that he needed to build a team and he needed to go where God was leading. When you obey the Lord, you often start well. Uh, often things at first go quite well. And as you begin to follow radically and obediently, it becomes a great joy. You, you, you see, uh, you often hear me talk about when we, get, when we give of our offering, you can never outgive the Lord. It's all His anyways. Well, in the same way, as we serve Him, we can never get to the end of how much joy there is in surrendering more of ourselves to the Lord. We often think it's the other way around. If we give up the right to ourselves, we lose out. But in all reality, the more we say, take my life and let it be, the greater significance, the greater peace, the greater joy we have. But see, there's a problem with that. Not in the eyes of God, but in the eyes of man, that is very, very inconsistent with what the world says. The world says it should be about us. It should be about what makes you comfortable and happy and what makes life easy uh, and, and what makes you successful and all those things. And as you read the Bible, you, you keep finding out that, that not a lot of that stuff is very important to the Lord. And so when you begin to live a life of obedience, of dare I say radical uh, obedience, and you say things like, well, I'm going to move to Cambodia to help set up a school there, not everyone's going to understand. And people might even oppose you. And as you obey the Lord and take radical steps, people might even be confused to the point of attacking, whether it be 
physical or verbal or behind the scenes with things like gossip and slander and that. And so today, we're going to look at the question of how do we deal with opposition when it comes? Because I want to, pro- I want to make a promise to you. If we are truly disciples of Christ, if we are who we say we are, if we say, Lord, here's my life, I promise there will be times in life when you will be opposed. I'm not saying that because I'm so wise and I have so much knowledge and experience. Yes, I've endured a fair share of opposition along the way, but God's word tells us it's going to happen. Uh, uh, Jesus, uh, shortly before he died, said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. (laughs) But he does first say, you will have trouble. You see... Following the Lord is a wonderful adventure, and I wouldn't trade it for the world, but that doesn't mean it's always the easiest, most comfortable thing. And that's where Nehemiah finds himself as we open our Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 4. We're going to cover a lot of ground this morning, so what I want to do today is I want to kind of summarize the big picture. I want to invite you to go back and keep reading in Nehemiah. If you're not going home and studying the text that we're looking at, You're missing so much richness and depth of this wonderful little book. So please don't just take Pastor Harris's word for it, Keith's word for it, my word for it. But please keep studying and looking further. Look beyond just what you hear in this little bit of time on a Sunday morning because it's huge. As I was preparing for this message, I I had three separate outlines of which way we could go because there's so much in chapter 4 of Nehemiah. And we're also going to look just a little bit at chapter 6. So you open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 4, and we come to the point where we're introduced to a man with an unfortunate name, Sanballat. Sanballat. I don't know how you pronounced it exactly back then, but whatever it is, it's not a fun name. And he had a friend, a partner in crime, Tobiah. And then later on, another guy, Geshem, comes into the picture. And there is one thing that is certain about these three people. Uh, you, you read ch- four, chapter 4, verse 1 about Sanballat, and you've already met him earlier on. These were all kind of rulers or leaders of areas that were surrounding Jerusalem. Okay, interestingly, about this time was when Israelites had become Jews shortly thereafter because Judah, when it was shortened to Jew, meant praise. Okay, so now often you'll see in your Bible every once in a while it doesn't say the Israelites or it doesn't say the people of Judah. It says Jews. Well, the Jews living in Jerusalem had the task set before them. Nehemiah had recruited a team. Uh, You go, your leadership stuff, they'd caught the vision and they were going after it, working together. Well, they got to the point where they actually started making progress. And sometimes when you make progress, other people get jealous, get fearful, get intimidated, whatever, however we want to psychoanalyze it. They don't like that you're succeeding. You'll find that in the workplace. You'll find that sometimes even at home. If you have a brother or sister, I bet you at one point or another you guys had a fight, didn't you? (laughs) Sydney's honest. He says all the time, I am 35 years old and I still quarreled with my sister when I was home this trip. And why? Because it wasn't fair. And I confess, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that, but it was true. No, 
But see, we get this point where if someone gets something or if someone's going well, it frustrates and can even anger people. And when Sanballat saw that Jerusalem was being fortified, it made him bad. We mad. We aren't told the exact reason why he was so angry, but it got so under his skin that Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, and these other people got together. And it almost sounds like a movie scene. They got together in a back room and they made a secret pact and they said, we're going to stop this. We're going to make this go away and we're going to make sure that wall never gets finished. And the interesting thing was that these three representatives of the three areas surrounding Judah and Jerusalem on the south, east, and west meant that Jerusalem was covered. If these guys really did what they were saying, where's Jerusalem going to go? They're stuck. They're in a pickle. This is a real problem. The other problem, though, that I believe Nehemiah would have taken great solace in is who sent Nehemiah back to Jerusalem? Now, spiritually, obviously, God called Nehemiah to go back. But who told Nehemiah he could go and rebuild Jerusalem? The king, right? So if you get these jealous guys opposing Nehemiah and his rebuilding of the wall, aren't they also opposing the king? Yes, they were. But that, when your king is 1,100 miles away, that's a 55-day journey by foot, roughly, and that's if you're making good time and, you know, there's not rest stops and potty breaks and whatever. You get the idea. 1,100 miles away, it's going to take time to get news back to the king. And Tobias, Sanballat, and Geshem knew that. And they knew that they could intimidate and seek to frustrate the plans of Nehemiah. And so how would we respond? While I was home, uh, I, I like to go in Christian bookstores when I get home because it's interesting to see what kind of books uh, America puts out and what Christians are reading today other than the Bible and and I saw a book that I, I couldn't figure out why, but it just caught my eye because it's not in a, a section I typically read. I Usually, if I'm going to read a biography, it's about dead people. Uh, if I'm going to read a narrative, it's, it's not one of those Christian living kind of books. Not that there's anything wrong with those. It's just not where I'm drawn. But I saw this book, and it stuck out because the title of the book was The Devil in Pew Number 7. I've been a pastor's kid, and I could think of a couple times where people have sat in pew number seven. Often pews in, in church, old churches are numbered. And, I, and so I picked it up. I thought that was an odd title for a Christian book. And that book was written by Rebecca Nickel. You see, Rebecca Nickel uh, was a pastor's kid. Uh, and she and her little brother Daniel uh, and their family had lived in a place called Sellerstown, North Carolina. In about 1977, they had lived there seven years. Uh, Rebecca had actually been born there. They'd been brought in. Dad was going to pastor this church. Uh, there was tremendous history in the town. In fact, the pastor before them carried the town's name of Sellers, Sellers Town. Well, Pastor Sellers had followed a long line of it being a small, tight-knit community. And in the process, uh, Robert Nickel, uh, Rebecca's father, had passionately sought to bring glory to God's name by reaching out to the community, by investing in families, by getting rid of some of the uh, 
politics that can sometimes entangle churches when people try to control things for their own agendas rather than the Lord's. And there was a man named Hori Pratt, I believe, that sat in pew number seven. And as Pastor Robert Nickel began to say, my advice comes from the Lord, not man. And he says, I'll always seek the Lord first. The opposition began. And what had started with this guy, Hori, welcoming Robert with open arms, began to slowly show itself as an opposing force to bringing glory to God's name as they sought to expand the kingdom together. Uh, they were starting a building project, and uh, Hori didn't like that they chose a roof style different than the one he wanted. And so he made up a big deal about that. His wife had taught something contrary to biblical teaching, so they asked her not to teach Sunday school anymore, and that didn't go very well either. And they began to develop a plan of intimidation And letters began to be written to the Nickel family, not just Robert, but to his wife. And intimidation began to these two little kids, only one kid when it first started, Rebecca. But the last letter Rebecca remembers seeing written to her dad simply said, you will leave Sellers Town, whether it's crawling or dead. In those seven years, 12 bombs had gone off in Sellers Town as a way to intimidate and eliminate uh, the family. Threats came consistently. This was a family that was persecuted like things we don't think happens in Western civilization. But the problem was simple. The church had begun to say, we are going to radically follow the Lord. We are going to go where God is leading us to go. And the church was growing in leaps and bounds. But one stakeholder, one guy that wanted to control, wasn't even a member of the church but it really bothered him that the control that he had used for so long through money, he was the wealthiest man in the town, had been taken away from him. And so he took matters into his own hands. And Rebecca remembers and has later found out more and more of all that had transpired. And so one day in early 1978, they were having dinner counseling a woman at the dinner table, and she and her young child were there when a man named Harris walked in. What we find out later in this story is that Harris had been told for years by this guy, Hori, and others that the pastor was having an affair with his wife. It wasn't true. It was a malicious lie. But that never stopped Harris from believing the lies because he also suffered from alcoholism. He wasn't quite all there, and he struggled. And one day, through whatever reason, had gotten the best of him. He put three guns in his pockets and walked to the pastor's home. He got to the pastor's home. Pastor Robert stood up and said, What are you doing, Harris? Sit down. Let's talk about this. And the man, Harris, shot Rebecca's father in the shoulder once. Robert stopped, said, Please stop, and continued then. He was six foot three and weighed 250 pounds at the time, so he kept moving toward him, trying to alleviate the situation, and was shot again in the the leg. Then Rebecca's mom stood up and said, please stop. And for whatever reason, he shot from no further away in the kitchen where they were having a meal between Keith and I. This man, Harris, shot the pastor's wife in the heart. She was able to crawl back to her bedroom seeking to call for help and instead died underneath their bed. 
Rebecca Nickel and her three-year-old brother Daniel sat hiding underneath the table as the man took his own wife hostage and hid out in a bedroom, not sure what to do. As things started to calm and there was a silence, Rebecca's dad looked at her, still alive, and said, you've got to run for help. A seven-year-old put in such a position, dad can't walk or move, that she is told you have to sneak out of this house like a burglar, even though that's what had come into the room. And you have to run to Aunt Pat's house and get help. And she did. But not before her mom had passed away, not before her dad was suffering terribly, and not before this horrible injustice had come upon her family. It was not fair. And for seven years they had been attacked from every side and now it had blown up and taken the life of their mom. The dad would never be the same. If anyone has a right to complain and be angry and to be bitter and to turn their back on God, it was Rebecca. Because later on, Harris was brought to justice and was convicted of murder, uh, but yet wasn't given a full life sentence. He was able to be paroled and that didn't seem fair. Hori, the man that had orchestrated these bombs, was caught. But unfortunately, his, ex, his influence spread so much that the judge that heard the case said, well, I know Hori to be a good man. And so he had convicted him to three subsequent sentences that were allowed to be taken at the same time. Hori spent one year in jail. If anyone had a right to say, this isn't fair, if anyone had a right to say, There's no God. This isn't it. It was her. And I think maybe Nehemiah might have felt like that. Because what happened in the story we find ourselves in today is Sanballat heard, was angry. He ridiculed the Jews. And then Tobiah the Ammonite joins and starts mocking them, saying, even a fox climbed down, it's going to collapse. Why did they say that? Well, they're saying, oh, it's also brittle because, remember, it had been burned. Nothing was left of Jerusalem. They were trying to rebuild a city that lie in ruins. And so how do you first attack a people as they try to do a good work? You make fun of them. Because let's face it, we want to be liked, don't we? I do. I don't like to be made fun of. I know I'm short. But if you tell me I'm short, it's going to hurt my feelings. It would have as a kid. Now it's just reality. But... But as a kid, you know, it was hard to be the smallest kid in the class. Nobody likes to be made fun of, right? So can you imagine the people as they realize these leaders from around them are attacking? But it doesn't stop there. A few verses later, we're then told that they kind of stepped up the ridicule. They stepped up the attack. They began to threaten force, saying they have an army that would come in. Did they have an army? We don't know. It doesn't tell us if that was true or not. But intimidation doesn't rely on facts, does it? It usually relies much more on intimidating fear. If you were Nehemiah, if you were Rebecca Nickel, I think you have every right to just turn and call it a day and say, I did my best, I give up. Don't you? I mean, Nehemiah tried. He walked 1,100 miles to try to help out his people. But after a while, couldn't he just go back to his good job? 
Wouldn't that be okay? He did the best he could. Wouldn't that be a reasonable response? And maybe, maybe, maybe Jerusalem just isn't meant to be brought back. Maybe we misunderstood the Lord. You see, there's a tremendous risk when opposition comes for us as believers. We can easily lose faith. We can easily begin to question the will of God. And when we do that, something else happens. If we're not careful... Now, please listen carefully. It's okay to talk to other people and bear each other's burdens with one another. We are called to do that as the church. But if someone gives you advice that is contrary to this, they're wrong. Okay? Always. If they give you advice that says, well, maybe God changed his mind in this situation, it doesn't work that way. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, right? So if he tells us that we are to go into all the world and make disciples, if he tells us that we are to love one another and love him, I think Tim preached on that a couple weeks ago, right? If we're doing those things, if we're saying my heart, soul, mind, and strength are yours, Lord, as your scriptures tell me, and somebody says, well, he didn't really mean that. Don't take their advice, please. It may be easy. It may be comfortable, but it's wrong. And it can have eternal, eternal consequences. And that's what Nehemiah was faced with. So what did he do? Did he go and talk to everybody and say, what do you think, and gather a strategic task force and have meetings and make sure there was a committee ready for this and a committee for that? No. He prayed. Time and again, as you read the book of Nehemiah, and I'm not opposed to task forces. I don't mind committees as long as I don't have to go to all the meetings. But sometimes we get ahead of the Lord. Nehemiah, you see it in chapter 1, you even see it in chapter 2, you see it here in chapter 4, in chapter 5, you see it again in chapter 6, you see it again. Where does he go first every single time? To God. He is a man, that, just like I talked about that first week we started, that practiced prayerful dependence. If he was going to build this wall, God, this is your ship. You got to figure this out. You got to take care of us. You got to get us through this. But Nehemiah wasn't afraid to be honest with the Lord either. I like this. Now, my life has never been threatened. I've done stupid things that have caused me to maybe risk my life and some of my broken bone stories. But my life has never been threatened for following the Lord. I don't know what it would have been like, but I'm pretty sure... I would want to do what Nehemiah did and make sure that I could tell God, God, this stinks. Turn their insults back on them. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do you realize what that's saying? Make them slaves. Maybe even kill them. Nehemiah wasn't afraid to pour his heart out before the Lord. His prayer wasn't just, thanks God, this is awesome. His prayer was honest. And his prayer was realistic. He sought the Lord And he put his faith in him. He put his confidence here on the Lord, saying, you put me here, and we prayed together, and, oh, we went ahead and we did some things that make sense anyway. And so we posted a guard to meet this threat. Maybe sometimes we get this backward. Maybe we post a guard, 
Maybe we have our meetings. Maybe we get everybody together. And if there's time, we pray. What if we flipped it? What if when opposition comes from within or from without, we sought God first? Whatever we did, there's a problem. We say, Lord, let's pray about this. I was so humbled. I, I, I only get a little while longer to use my kids as illustrations because they're going to start noticing. But when my four-year-old son got admitted to the hospital, he was miserable. He had thrown up over 30 times in the span of eight hours. He was a sick little man. And it was just breaking my heart to watch him and not know what to do. And I knew he'd be fine. He was dehydrated. But, but when he got there, we got up and they admitted him into his, his really cool room. And he was pretty excited about the room that looked nice. But he had all these tubes and everything. And you see a little kid and it's just, it's sad. And he looked at me. He said, hey, Dad, you going to pray for me now? That's my, that's a four-year-old kid. That's why Jesus tells us in the, from the mouths of babes, you know, the faith of a child. And I said, yeah, Isaiah, we'll pray. And we did. And exactly 24 hours after that IV went in, he was my insane son again. And it was amazing how God healed. But I will never forget that my son looked at me and said, hey, dad, duh, let's pray. We often go solve everything first. And then if we have time, we think about prayer. I believe the reason Nehemiah was successful more than any was his faith was deeply rooted in the prayers of a righteous and effective man. And so what happened next? Well, meanwhile, the people in Judah said, It's too hard! Which does happen. You take on a big job and it gets hard. Just look at my, my, the office upstairs. It's a big job and Keith and the team and Mark and the team could say it's too much. Let's just not bother with it. Mike and, and Pastor Eris and Dory and Twinkie can meet at Starbucks and give up. That's okay, by the way. But no, they, we press on to rebuild the wall. But they were saying there's too much. We cannot do it. And oh, by the way, our enemies, now they're saying we're going to sneak up on them at night. That's a scary thing. If you remember being a kid, you were afraid of the dark, most likely. Can you imagine the real fear of being in an unguarded city? Knowing that you have enemies on three out of your four borders, and the fourth probably does too, you just, they haven't shown themselves. And then on those borders, they're saying, we're going to wait till nightfall and hide and jump them. Would you sleep well at night? think I would. So what do you do? Well, you pray first, you stand firm on the Lord, and then you seek God to give you wisdom. Nehemiah doesn't get enough credit for using the godly wisdom and discernment that he was given. Nehemiah, no matter how you look at it, secular, biblical, any way you look at it, he was a good leader. He cast vision well, he led teams well, he strategized well. He is a leader worth following whether you love Jesus or not. This guy knew what he was doing. He was a gifted, gifted leader, which is why he ended up basically being second in charge of all of the kingdom. So when he's put in charge of Jerusalem, he doesn't just do so lazy. And that leads us to another point we need to remember. Sometimes when things get hard, what do we do? We do one of two things. It's called fight or flight. You ever heard of that? The fight or flight mentality. Some of you, if you're attacked, will attack back, right? You'll get defensive. And some of you, your brains turn on and all of a sudden you're in the action and things come out of your mouth and you're like, yeah, let them have it. They deserve it. 
and you're impressed with how mean you can be because it feels good for a second, doesn't it? Don't lie, it does. Now, when you get home and you realize that's a different issue, but you fight. And the other option that, that is far more common today is that we just fly away. If there's a problem and there's opposition and it's scary, instead of dealing with it, instead of working hard to practice what Jesus calls the ministry of reconciliation in the New Testament, what do we do instead? We run away. We withdraw. We don't see that Nehemiah did that. In fact, what you see is Nehemiah doubled down. If you're playing poker or blackjack or a game and you're about to take a big risk, you can go a couple of different ways. You can hold, you know, do nothing, or you can go all in. Nehemiah went all in. He, not, he didn't just back off and say, well, let's hope God saves us. He thought about what was the best way to continue with the work the Lord had set before them. And so what did he do? He stationed people at every weak point. He had a very limited amount of people. But he went ahead and he put the people where they were weakest, posting them, interestingly, by families with their swords, spears, and bows. Why do I bring up families? Nehemiah was a genius. If I ask you in a weird, random situation, we're going to war. For whatever reason, Alliance International Church has been attacked. This building is under siege. We've been without protection for a while. And I ask you to go, for a little bit, you might say, yeah, we will fight for you, Mike. It'll be great. But then after a while, you're going to wonder, is my life really worth it? And I wouldn't blame you. I'm going to be asking the same about you. And you're going to begin to question whether you really want to fight this, whether this is your cause or not Pastor Mike's. Right? Sometimes that happens. Sometimes you start thinking, what's the big deal? Maybe we just don't need to. Well, when in the face of opposition, Nehemiah had a brilliant idea. Who will protect one another more than anything? Families. Put them together. Let them fight together. Let them grow together in their faith as they trust God to protect them in their hour of great need. That's huge. Now, he could have just said, leave your family away. Robert Nichols could have packed his bags and left Sellerstown when the opposition began. But instead, they sought the Lord more than ever. And it cost his wife her life and later his own. That they were committed, no matter what, to following the plans that God had laid before them. For Nehemiah, it was rebuilding the wall. For Pastor Robert Nichols and his church, it was the same as any church today exists, to glorify God by making disciples of all nations. And Pastor Nichols was unafraid to keep going no matter what the cost. Nehemiah, the same. So he put the families together and off they went. And he stood back for a second and he looked over and he looked at all the nobles and he reminded them. Just like in our series Deuteronomy, you hear that word of every good Hebrew leader. Remember, the Lord is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your home. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, get there. Because that's where the action is. Our God will fight for us. Nehemiah had prayed. Nehemiah had shared his foundation. He reminded the people their faith, their confidence, their trust was in the Lord. And they were ready. 
our God will fight for us and we will trust him. But they didn't just get ready for a fight, interestingly, did they? No. So, so far, Nehemiah has prayed. He's displayed great confidence and trust in the Lord. He's come up with a plan. And then what did they do? They got back to work. Remember, a wall still needs built. And so instead of saying, we're just going to stand guard, we can't build right now because somebody might attack us, they kept doing the job that would help protect them from attack. You see, again, it would have been easy for Sanballat and Tobiah to distract them from the job, which is what they were trying to do in the first place. And the Jews could have easily stopped because they were so busy protecting themselves. But instead... Those that were carrying the materials carried materials in one hand and a sword in the other. Think about that. How easy is it to get work done with one hand? Not very easy, but as Sydney said, they're multitasking. They must have been women. But for the rest of them, they had weapons on their back and they divided. Half were protectors and the other half were doing the work. And they kept on going. And each of the builders wore the the sword at their side. And then we read this. Neither I, nor my brothers, nor my men, nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon, even when he went for water. I love this about Nehemiah. He didn't just leave them out there because he's in control and backed off. He could have easily stayed back where it was safe. No, he stayed out on the front lines with his people. He stayed with them, standing together. When opposition comes, you pray first. You stand firm on the Lord. You make sure your confidence is in Him and not one another. And then you stand together. You say, this is where God's leading us. Let's not do it alone. Let's stand together. And that's what they did. And their leader was right there with them. I wish today I could say to some of our leaders, quit blaming everybody, take responsibility, and let's get through this together. But we've become a culture that gets so caught up in blaming that we've missed just pressing on toward the goal which God has set before us. Nehemiah didn't lose sight of that, and he stood there. Even when you get to chapter 6, the attacks became personal. They started attacking Nehemiah saying, oh, Nehemiah is plotting to become king and do this and this and this. Interestingly, in all of Nehemiah, Nehemiah never retaliates. He addresses the lies. He says they're not true. And he moves on. When things are said about us, what do we usually want to do? We want to defend ourselves, don't we? Well, it's okay to stop the lies. But Nehemiah, as a forerunner to what exactly Jesus did, didn't get caught up in playing politics. He didn't get caught up in protecting his honor. He trusted the Lord would do that for him. And so instead, Nehemiah continued to press on, knowing the people were all trying to frighten them, thinking their hands will get too weak, they're not going to get done. But Nehemiah again prays. Robert Nichols was known to say, whenever the opposition came, my advice comes from the Lord, I trust him. I kind of think that's what Nehemiah was saying as well. And then you see this. You've gone through all this opposition, all these threats, all these risks of life. But what you read is the people were ready for a battle. What you don't read is that the battle ever came to fruition. Why? Because the people stood firm on the word of God. 
because Nehemiah prayed and continually obeyed where the Lord was leading them to go. Sometimes horrible things do and will happen. Pastor Robert Nichols lost his wife. Later, he lost his own life. Justice didn't seem fair with those crimes. But interestingly, much later on in life, Rebecca came to look at things and somebody heard her story and invited her to go on TV on a show called The Dr. Phil Show. I don't know if you've ever heard of Dr. Phil. He's an interesting man. Um, But he wanted to interview Rebecca and her brother Daniel now in their 30s. Yeah, they would have been in their 30s. And they told him, oh, one other thing. Harris, the man that killed your mother and shot your father, we want him there too. He's now out of prison. The year before that, or a couple years before that, Rebecca had received letters from a man named Hori, the man that had manipulated and orchestrated numerous terroristic acts against her family. The man had spent a little bit of time in prison, but had lived with guilt that was far greater than him, just as Harris had. But Hori Pratt did something amazing. As in his own words, he said, I'm writing to you to say I'm sorry, and I'm writing to you to say this because I got right with God. You see, when Rebecca wrote back, she said, I accept your apology, but you don't have to ask forgiveness. We forgave you years ago because that's what our parents and God's word had taught us to do, whether you asked for it or not. A young girl that had watched with her own eyes the murder of her mother and the near murder of her father could look and write down with great confidence that the Lord is my shepherd and began to have a relationship with Horace Pratt, one that made them later call him their friend. The man that had tried to blow up their family, that had helped orchestrate the murder of their children, she responded with grace and with love and said, I will turn the other cheek. And Horace, to do the best he could, Hori, to do the best he could to rebuild their lives, had set up a trust fund to pay for their college, had set up ways to help where he could. But she had demonstrated a love that says, whatever the world may bring, my God is bigger. And I will follow what he tells me to do. And so that's what she did. And so when she got on Dr. Phil, they expected everyone was waiting for Harris to look at Daniel and Rebecca and apologize to them in public. Because that's what the media wants. They want a big production, right? He never did it. He never made a public apology for killing their mother and shooting their father and, in the eyes of man, ruining their lives. What he said to them in private, maybe he said he was sorry. Dr. Phil then asked the two, well, he hasn't apologized. What do you think of that? He said, again, we've already forgiven him. We love him. And we pray for him. Nehemiah had the task before him and no matter what opposition brought, knew the path he was to go. For us as a church, we know exactly where we are to go. We've identified for you. We've made it really simple. We are to glorify God. We are to love Christ and become more like him. We are to love one another. And we're to go into all the world and make disciples. 
That's what we're called to do. That is the simplicity of the scriptures. It's that easy. And if we, as a church family, pursue that wholeheartedly, we might face opposition, but we are going exactly where God has called us to go. And so when the opposition comes, we can stand firm together, trusting in him, saying that my confidence is in you, Lord. I will press on taking hold of that for which Christ Jesus has taken hold of me. Isn't that a great way to live? Isn't that tremendously better than saying, woe is me? Poor me. I wish it was different. Rebecca responded with grace in the most horrible of situations. Others, you think of Corey Tenboom and how she responded. Brother Yoon, uh, who'd been imprisoned unfairly in China, how many times continued to pray for his guards and thank them for abusing him? How do you get to that point that when opposition comes, you get bigger? You spend time with the Lord, growing in faith, knowing that your confidence is in him and not in your own abilities. Where are you today? Where am I today? I believe our church is at a unique point in history where we have an opportunity here in a community that is exploding with English speakers and multicultural families and that we should be aggressively seeking to reach out to Wampo, to Hong Hum, to Kowloon, and to beyond because a lot of you come from the new territories, wherever you come from. And then we've got this amazing opportunity that many of you have unfettered access across the border. And many of you have access to countries very nearby that not all of us do. But yet, what do we do? We sit comfortably, idly by, afraid that it might be uncomfortable. Praise the Lord, Nehemiah took an 1,100-mile walk. Maybe we can walk next door to our neighbor, even if they oppose us. Say, I love you. I just want to help in any way I can. I leave you with this, the words of Jesus. Nehemiah faced opposition like none of us probably ever will. But this is what Jesus told us today how to respond. I tell you who hear me, love your enemies. Well, that's no fun. That gets worse. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other. If someone takes your cloak, give him your tunic too. In other words, give him everything. It doesn't matter. 52 days later, from the beginning, the wall was completed. And they realized they had lost because their work had been done with the help of God. Nehemiah prayed. Nehemiah kept pressing on. Rebecca followed the Lord when life wasn't fair. And Jesus tells us, love those that persecute us. Be ready for opposition, but live it with grace and truth and love. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth that we can find in the life of Nehemiah. And I ask, oh God, that we would be a people that loves others well, that we handle opposition with grace and truth, and that we press on together, building one another up and even risking whatever it is for the sake of your kingdom.
Lord, make us a people where anyone that comes to these doors knows they're loved by you and by us. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen.